as he ministers God's word to us this morning. Please turn with me to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 5. One year ago, uh, the, the Sunday before uh, New Year's Eve, a year ago, I began preaching through the Beatitudes, and we come full circle to the, to the end, to the last, to the eighth of the Beatitudes uh, today. So we get to see in completion this picture of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The whole Sermon on the Mount is a picture of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And the Beatitudes in particular, as an introduction, uh, give us the specifics of, of what that looks like. So as you look into the mirror of the word of God, what do you see? Do you, do you see a reflection of Christ's righteousness? Do you see yourself hungering and thirsting for this righteousness? Or do you see the need of a savior who is inviting you to take up your cross and to follow him? I pray that you would see this for yourself. There is a very modest outline in your bulletin. Uh, there are no slides, so I encourage you, look at the word of God, look at it yourself and taste and see that the, the Lord is good. Reading in Matthew chapter five, uh, our, our passage is focused on Matthew 5, verse 10, but I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Matthew chapter 5 so you see it in context. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you that you have made clear the standard of righteousness, which we see in a Savior who is Jesus Christ and only in him. Lord God, I pray that we would hunger and thirst for such righteousness in our own lives, and we would see that the Lord Jesus is more than sufficient to satisfy us, to give us hope, and to give us the blessing of being yours so that we have the privilege of calling you our Father. Lord, send your spirit to be our teacher. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you've been there, so you're, this is your first time to some very large airport, amusement park, some sort of place that you've gone to. It's first, first time there, and what are you looking for as you enter this grand place? You're looking for that sign and that little red dot or star that says, you are here. You're trying to figure out where are you in reference to all the other stuff that's around you. 
from Fredericksburg, you could, you could take advantage of air travel from, from four different airports. We have Richmond to our south, we have Reagan National, and then we've also got Dulles, and we've even got BWI. So you can, you, you've got all these choices, and you've probably experienced it. You're going to pick somebody up, and they've told you what airport they're gonna be at. And you're in route, you're almost there, and then you get this text that says, uh, yeah, I thought it was Richmond, but it's actually Reagan National. <laughs> and so you're, you're re-diverting and you're encouraging them, just stay put, I'll get there. Um, and it seems so simple, and yet just that little difference of where you should have been makes all the difference in life. Um, it's one thing to arrive at the wrong airport, but it's, in, it's entirely another thing to miss something of significance for eternity. Arriving at the wrong airport, so there's a little bit of a delay, there's a little bit of an inconvenience, but it's recoverable. Now, what if you spent your whole life expecting to go to heaven? And you find out that you don't have assigned seating when you get there. You find out that the door does not open to you. You've been living with this expectation that you will arrive where you want to be. And yet you've been completely misled. You have not looked at what the Word of God says. You've lived according to your own thoughts, your own desires, your own feelings, and you fall short of these things. Because if, there, if you don't have that assigned seating from the Lord God himself, there's no way to buy the ticket. There's no way to recover. There's no way to turn things around. And all of the best intentions will leave you flat. So I want to spare each of us, the fear and the trauma of recognizing these things too late. And I want to encourage you, see what the Word of God says. This passage of Scripture that we've read gives us the only place, the only way to find the happiness and peace that every one of us is looking for. Every one of us. The place we're looking for is called the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. This is what our hearts desire, because this is the only place to find happiness, and that happiness starts right now. It's not something you have to wait for in the future. And so our outline will give us three points that we will see from the text. Uh, the significance of righteousness in the kingdom of God. The significance of righteousness in the kingdom of God. The substantial reality of war between kingdoms. There is a war that is a real war that is present every moment. And that, that reality needs to be understood by the Christian. And then the shared sufferings of Christ. The shared sufferings of Christ with his citizens of the kingdom. Let's start with the significance of righteousness. As I said, the Sermon on the Mount is a, is a summary. It's a picture of what does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. If you read a little bit further in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this in verse 19, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, whoever relaxes one of the, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, he'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, Whoever does them and teaches them, he will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And remember, Jesus said later in Matthew chapter 23, he said, all of the scribes and Pharisees tell you, do it. They knew the law. They knew it clearly. They proclaimed it. But he said, don't do it as they do it. For they tie heavy burdens upon the backs of men. And it's impossible. See, what we would see in looking at the law, looking at the perfect righteousness of the law, is that we fall short of the law. We should not ever think that we can achieve it through our own work, through our own efforts, through our own intentions. We can't get there from here. The Beatitudes begin where they end. Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Matthew 5, 10, the eighth beatitude, Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it, it connects. Rather than seeing it as a sequence and you just check off each thing as you go and then you're done, it, it, is, it should connect back. You should see it as a whole. The individual parts make up the whole and reflect the righteousness of God. The Beatitudes pivot on Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If you looked in Luke chapter 6, you'd see a shorthand version of these Beatitudes. Luke hits the major points. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are those who mourn. And then he gets to blessed are those who are persecuted. This reinforces the fact that they're connected. Luke gives us a summary. Matthew gives us more details and breaks it out further. Matthew gives us a complete version, and it begins with emptying oneself. Emptying oneself of any thought that you will attain the kingdom of heaven through your own strength. You're emptied by Matthew 5.3. You're poor in spirit. You recognize the spiritual poverty that you absolutely have. You do not have any riches in and of yourself. You do not have any way to please God in your own strength. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And so what's the response? Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn. You mourn over this. This is not something necessarily in and of itself to be happy of because you recognize I don't have the means to please God and of myself. So you mourn over it. And then Matthew 5, 5, you are humbled. You are meek. You are waiting for the Lord to supply that righteousness. And he does so in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his perfect righteousness. Matthew 5, 6, hungering and thirsting for righteousness leads to satisfaction. Because by faith in Jesus Christ, you are fully satisfied. You are received into the number. You are blessed beyond measure because the Lord God sees you in Christ. He sees you as fully righteous. And then the Lord begins to fill you. Matthew 5, 7, you are motivated by the Spirit of God to be merciful. And you receive the mercy as you do so. And you are blessed because you're pure in heart. Matthew 5, 8. You see God by faith through Jesus Christ. And then Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God make peace. 
They issue the terms of peace that are through the gospel and through the terms that the Lord God and his son Jesus Christ have agreed to, through the covenant of peace. So the Christians bring these terms of peace to the world. And what do they receive? Well, they receive persecution because the world doesn't want peace on God's terms. They want it on their own terms. So your, your meditation this morning was from Psalm 103. And it, it says, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. The steadfast love of the Lord. Now, so think of it in terms, you'll sometimes see that translated as loyalty, as loyalty. And loyalty can sometimes have a bad name because you, you think of a boss at work and this boss is loyal to his people. This boss is looking out for his people and is not necessarily holding his people to the same standard. And so you think, well, this boss is really loyal to his people. Well, that's not what loyalty is. That's favoritism. It's not loyalty. Loyalty is something more. <clears throat> and you see it played out in society. What's, a, what's another way? Um, we might call it mercy. A woman who finds herself in an unplanned pregnancy. And the world says, that's all right. We can take care of that. We have an abortion clinic. We can, we can take care of that problem so that you can go on and live life. On the surface, it seems like it solves a problem, but it only creates a deeper problem. It creates the loss of life, but it creates a scar on that woman that she carries for the rest of her life. Likewise, in the public school system, a student can fail a standard of learning test, the SOL test. They can fail it. They can try again and fail it. They can try again and fail it. And then the school system can say, well, you've tried three times. We're going to give you credit for that SOL because you tried. But what does that do to the child? The child has not learned what they need to learn. And so what looks like mercy, what looks like care, is actually fake. It's false. And it doesn't solve a deeper problem. Neither of those provide help to the person in need. True loyalty is twofold. And we see this in our loyal, steadfast love of a heavenly father. It's twofold. It's a commitment to the person. It's an absolute, undying commitment to the person all the way through. But it's also a commitment to the highest standards of excellence. So the commitment to the person and the commitment to the highest standards of excellence, what the Bible calls righteousness, those two together are the loyal, steadfast love of the Lord God. Only those two together are true, faithful, covenant love. So we know that love covers a multitude of sins, and we like to say that so we can overlook problems, but truly, those sins must be acknowledged before they can be covered over. And so the absolute commitment to righteousness is just as necessary as the absolute commitment to the person. Because remember, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6, but it rejoices in the truth. 
it must rejoice in the truth. Do you hunger and thirst for true righteousness? Or are you just happy with your own self-righteousness? Are you just happy with ignoring righteousness altogether? And let's, let's let everybody be bygones and not worry about these things. Both of those extremes are wrong. Only to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God will lead to the satisfaction that comes to finding faith in Jesus Christ. If you recognize you are not hungering and thirsting for Christ's righteousness, then go back to the beginning, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Recognize you're hungering and thirsting for the wrong things. And humble yourself before the Lord. Because Romans chapter 14, verse 17 tells us this. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. You won't be persecuted for being nice. You won't be persecuted for getting along with the rest of the world. But by simply being a Christian, by reflecting the character of Christ, you will receive persecution. You will receive resistance from the world. It will happen. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Simply by being a Christian, you will receive persecution. And that leads us to our next point, the substantial reality of war between the kingdoms. This is, this is the why of persecution, because there is a war at hand. Now, the believer is at peace with God, and he's at peace with other believers, because the king of glory has made peace through Christ, through his atonement and his righteousness. But then he sends us into battle. He sends us into a war, a spiritual war. And that battle is for the sake of loving our enemies so that we might love them by offering his terms of peace. Only through his terms of peace can they be reconciled to the Lord God himself. Earlier when we prayed the Lord's Prayer, uh, we prayed this, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come. That, that petition literally is asking for, for three things. It's asking for the Lord's kingdom to come and displace or destroy Satan's kingdom. Satan's kingdom is established in this world. When we say thy kingdom come, we are asking for the kingdom of grace to advance in this world through the hearts of believers and to bring God's peace to them, but also to hasten what's called the kingdom of glory. You see, the war continues until Christ returns. And in the kingdom of glory, all things will be set right. And we will have no more war. We will have peace. We will have no more tears, no more sorrow. And yet in the midst of the life we live, we experience the struggle, the war. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us that the battle rages for the Christian on three fronts. There are three different fronts that we're fighting this battle. There's the course of the world. Your neighbor is not your enemy, but it's the course of the world, the way in which the world runs contrary to the righteousness of God, contrary 
to his kingdom and his righteousness. There's also the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan. We war against him as well. And then lastly, as if it weren't enough, the third battle is waged in yourself. The old nature, the old man, the, the flesh that the Bible calls, that we are waging against. We have the spirit of God to wage this war. But the battle's waged, waged on these three different fronts. So having been delivered by faith in Jesus Christ from the world, the flesh, and the devil, we are then sent into battle with such. Yet how many of us look to find peace on our own terms? How many of us look to find peace on our own terms? We, could, we can look in Hebrews chapter 11, and we have the example of Moses. Moses, who had all the temptations before him, to make peace on his own terms. And yet Moses, chapter 11, verse 24, says, by faith, by faith in the Messiah, the promise of God, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He could have taken that opportunity and just enjoyed the world, enjoyed the benefits of the world, and yet he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God. He went to his people. Now, he had a long path before the Lord began to use him to deliver his people. But he knew his calling was to his people, to go to them. And so he chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. See, he knew the reward was not on earth. He was looking forward. That's why he was looking by faith. And the writer of Hebrews compares ill treatment of the world with the reproach of Christ, with the reproach of Christ. Kingdoms do battle. The kingdom of God does battle against the kingdom of Satan. If you are a believer, what did you expect? There is a battle that rages, as I said, on these three fronts. And yet the Lord, by his grace, gives you the ability to fight this spiritual battle and to be victorious in Christ's victory. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17 says... The dragon became furious with the woman. So the dragon, the kingdom of Satan, the woman, the kingdom of God. It became furious with the, with the woman, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus, both. Keep the commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The dragon makes war through suffering, through torment, and through persecution. And yet, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Matthew 5.11, when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. 
Rejoice and be glad, for this is how they treated the prophets. In the midst of the battle, Jesus says, Rejoice, take courage. This should be happening. This is what you should expect. It may look fearful to stand before a world that hates you. And yet, remember, the believer does not suffer alone. This is not your battle. This is not for your righteousness. This is for Christ's righteousness. And so there's a shared suffering of Christ with the citizens of his kingdom. There's a shared suffering. You are not suffering alone. Suffering comes in many different forms. Persecution is a, is a subset of the, just the general suffering that the Christian will undergo. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 16, Peter gives us good words in the face of this suffering. And he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Why does he say, do not be surprised? Because you're going to be surprised. It's going to take you off guard. You're going to think, why is this happening to me? Peter reminds us, do not be surprised. As though something strange were happening to you. This is part of the design of the Lord God. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Rejoice. You are sharing the sufferings of Christ that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When the kingdom of glory is revealed, it will be clear. Now we live by faith, and yet we look forward to that time. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In other words, there's no need to be ashamed of that persecution. But Peter's clear. It's possible to suffer for, for doing stupid things. It's possible to suffer as an evildoer. That's not, that doesn't count as persecution. That doesn't count. It's suffering, uh, granted, and hopefully we turn and we learn from that. But it's an opportunity for us to see that to suffer as a Christian is a reason for blessing. It's a reason to rejoice. Because you're insulted for the name of your Savior, not for your own righteousness. You're suffering as a Christian. That shame should not attach to you. Christ has borne that reproach. He's already carried that at the cross. He suffered for you. The believer suffers for the glory of a greater kingdom. But shared suffering should not imply that it's, it's equal weight and responsibility between the Christian and Christ himself. So you might have received something really delicious for Christmas. Somebody may have given you a gift of something, some savory morsel, something really tasty, something wonderful. And uh, I've been known to walk up to somebody and sample what they have and just excuse myself with that sentence, hey, sharing is caring, right? <laughs> so you should share with me because don't you want me to be happy? Right? But this is not the kind of sharing that we're talking about. 
Your Savior suffered for your sake. He has already suffered for you. Not simply as an example, but first and foremost as the atonement for sin. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 27, says Christ's humiliation, his, hu his humble being humbled, consisted in him being born. Simply the Son of God coming into the world and taking on flesh, that alone was a great humility. But it didn't end there. Being born and that in a low condition, made under the law, under all the requirements of the law, the requirements of righteousness, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and therefore the cursed death on the cross. He experienced God's wrath on the cross. He accepted that wrath, although he was perfectly righteous. And he did so so that you could find forgiveness and hope eternally. And then in being buried, continuing under the power of death for a time. So Jesus said in John chapter 15, he said, if the world hates you, don't be surprised. Know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you as my own, therefore the world hates you. And that's the reminder that it has already hated Christ. So now I rejoice in these things because it reminds me my identity is in Christ. My performance is not based on my abilities, but I live by faith in my Savior, Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul gives us this, this verse that sometimes causes us to, to wonder what's going on. Colossians 1, 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. In filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Well, Paul's letter to the Colossian church, as well as all of scripture, tells us there's nothing fundamentally lacking in Christ's sufferings for atonement. He was fully righteous. His atonement was perfect. So what is Paul speaking of when he says his sufferings are filling up what is lacking in Christ. Well, Christ is the head. We believers are the body. What's, what is being filled up is the number of afflictions, the number of sufferings, the number of persecutions that the church will go through before the kingdom of glory comes. A believer is part of that body. There is a number of afflictions that are expected for every believer, as well as the body total. And it is through, Paul says elsewhere in Acts chapter 14, it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. It's through. They are foreordained. They are already designed. You're simply walking in what God has already prepared. It's God's divinely appointed plan that we can count it joy when we encounter various trials because our faith is being tested and our hope is being made more sure because we're figuring out it's in Christ, it's not in our own abilities. 
to persevere. It keeps us poor in spirit. It keeps us humbled. It keeps us hungering and thirsting for Christ's righteousness. Remember, Moses chose to experience the ill treatment of the world along with the people of God rather than to find pleasure in the sin for a season. Ultimately, though, persecution refines the body of Christ. It refines the body, but it also removes the unbeliever from the body. Mark chapter 4 gives us the parable of the soils, and I'll just summarize it. But the seed that's sown on rocky places, on difficult ground, those are compared to one who hears the word, they hear the word, and they respond with joy. So seemingly, the Lord has done a work in their heart. They're joyful. And yet, because they have no firm root, what happens? Afflictions and persecutions arise, and then they fall away. So in the midst of the affliction and the persecution, the Lord is, is winnowing out the body, purifying it collectively. But the problem is there's no firm root. So recognize, if you feel as if, well, I'm not sure if I'm really a Christian, maybe, maybe I'm going to fall away. Well, you're not going to fall away if you're rooted in Christ. You're not going to fall away if you're rooted in him. And that's where you want to find your root. Don't look at yourself to know whether or not I'm a good enough Christian. Look to Christ. Look to him. It's by faith in him that your root goes deep and you're prepared for the afflictions and the trials. Probably the, the most familiar passage in all of scripture is Psalm 23. And it's good to go back to familiar passages, not just because the words on the surface are comfortable, but so you see the depth of what God's word teaches. Right? How does that psalm begin? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. The fact that he's a shepherd implies he is leading me. I need him to lead me. I cannot lead myself. I shall not want. I shall be content. I shall be satisfied with him as my shepherd. What does he do? He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. What are the green pastures and the quiet waters there for? Just for me to enjoy life and, and live a good life and move on? No, he's doing it to restore my soul so I'm prepared for what? What comes next? He will guide me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He will guide me in paths of righteousness. And guess what? On that path of righteousness, what do you expect to get from the world? Pats on the back saying, thank you. Thank you for showing me how sinful I am. I love to be reminded of that. No, the world hates that. The course of the world is against the righteousness of God, against his goodness. And yet he does it for his namesake and for your good. So would you pray with me? Our God and Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of your word that your spirit is our teacher and applying it to our word, our, our, our own hearts. 
Your word is true, Father. Your word is a light that shines into dark places. And I pray, Father, stir up each one of us, Lord, each one that is here, so that we would not rest until we find our rest in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing.